0: Certified, the autobiography of David Harris Written by David and Helen Harris Read by James Pollack For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com Chapter 7 Hard drugs were difficult to get in Perth We were poorly connected and without regular supply, so we used whatever drugs we could score When we couldn't get speed, we would smoke dope, and when dope was short, we drank whatever alcohol took our fancy We had a stash of stolen goods in reserve, and if we needed money, we would pawn gold or jewellery, using a fake ID. There was a guy we met in a pub who would help by selling electrical goods to his workmates. Sometimes we would pay friends to pawn stuff for us. Sometimes we would come across small antiques, ornaments, picture frames and jewellery boxes. Even though it was risky, we could move such items through antique dealers. Sometimes, when money got low, we would catch a train out to the more affluent suburbs in the evening, wandering around looking for a likely house. As Donna's pregnancy progressed, Rick paid more and more attention to her. This made me feel a little on the outer, and I longed to have a female company of my own. I was still in touch with Karen, my girlfriend, back in Ballarat, and wanted to fly her over, but there was no way Rick would have agreed to spending that much cash. In those days, a flight to Perth was well over $1,000, so I decided I needed my own money. I started doing burglaries of my own. On top of having my own stream of income, solo burglaries held a particular kind of challenge. I had no one to watch my back and no one to beat off an assailant if I was cornered. I had to walk the line between caution and daring, trusting in my own ability to flee if I was interrupted. I enjoyed the adrenaline rush and each job brought Karen closer to me. It seemed like no time at all, and I had saved the money needed to pay for Karen's ticket. I waited at the arrivals gate, nervous with anticipation. As stiff and tired passengers shuffled past me towards the baggage carousel, I scanned their faces, looking for Karen. At last, there she was. I called out to her, grinning widely. I wrapped my arms around her and held her for a long time, savouring the feel of a woman close to me. As we walked to collect her bags, I told her all about Perth the beautiful home we lived in near the golf course and, of course, the weather. She seemed happy enough to see me, although not as keen as I was to see her. Karen stayed with us for a couple of weeks and I showed her around Perth. I enjoyed her company. It felt so good to have a girl of my own. Instead of feeling like an awkward add-on to Rick and Donna, I tried desperately to get her to stay. Come on, honey, it'll be great. You can get a job here and we'll be together, I said in my most convincing tone. Karen just maintained that she had to go home, that her mum and dad were expecting her back. It was a disappointing response. Karen returned to Victoria and that was that. She assured me that she had a good time and she liked being with me and promised to come back as soon as she could. Deep down, I felt abandoned. Over the next few weeks, I called her every few days, but she seemed evasive. She was busy and couldn't talk, wasn't home, had an appointment to get to, needed some time to think, the excuses were never ending. I took the hint she wasn't coming back it was over I was abandoned and heartbroken how could she do this to me I even paid for a trip the spirit spoke through Donna assuring me I was better off without her there was another guy involved that only made it feel worse I felt like I'd been used I sank into despair I was heartbroken I got really smashed and drunk trying to drown my pain and numbing out my life the spirit assured me that there was no need to be sad he could take away the pain What happened next was completely unexpected i followed his direction to go lie down on my bed as i lay there i sensed a strange warm presence coming over me and i felt waves of love pouring over me it was like sinking into a soothing hot bath only from the top down my grief and despair seemed to just float away This was better than any dope I could buy. For days afterwards, I walked around feeling peaceful and full of love for everyone. It was like nothing else I'd ever experienced. I longed to feel that calm, loving feeling again. I had a new appreciation for this demon and felt a deep desire to get a tattoo depicting the spirit smoking a pipe. I talked over the idea with Rick. The spirit was pressuring me to write his name on the tattoo. Rick didn't think that was a good idea. I could tell by his worried expression that he seemed to be very concerned. I sensed that he believed there was more to this than just the ink under my skin. I was convinced I wanted this friend tattooed on my arm. I got the tattoo, but without the name on it. The hope of being with Karen was finally out of my mind. I settled back into my normal routine of stealing what I could, selling what I could, scoring what drugs were around, and trying to stay wasted most of the time. Rick and I still burgled houses together, and I did a few jobs by myself, more out of boredom than for any other reason. It seemed like the cops in Perth had no idea who was breaking into people's houses and had no real plan to find out. We figured we could go on like this more or less indefinitely. We weren't planning on getting caught and had no plan for what to do if we were, but perhaps we should have. One morning, I was awakened by the sound of someone belting on the front door. It must have been about dawn. I'd been sleeping heavily, assisted by my regular dose of marijuana and whiskey a few hours before. Rick got up calling out, ''Hang on!'' I'm coming, and staggered to the door. No sooner had he turned a handle than the door pushed him backwards. Cops barged in, waving guns and shouting orders. I took a while to come to my senses. My head was fuzzy and my eyes took a moment to adjust to the scene. Before I knew what was happening, I felt the full force of four cops dragging me out of bed. They pinned me to the floor. In the other room, Rick was pressed to the carpet by another four, while four more ran through the house, dragged Donna out of bed and pushed her to the floor as well. Satisfied that we were the only occupants, the cops turned the place upside down, looking for drugs, guns and whatever else they could find. With the house a shambles from the search, the copper at my left shoulder demanded my name. Joe Bloggs. He didn't like me giving that name, so my arm was wrenched a little further up my back and my head pushed a little harder into the floor. Where'd you get this stuff? What stuff? It's all ours. Sure it is. Get up. The other three cops released their grip and I slowly got to my feet. Get dressed. I silently obeyed, making sure I gave them absolutely no reason to think I was going to try anything. Turn around, he demanded. Another cop wrenched my arms behind me and secured them in handcuffs. Move. Rick, Donna and I were frog-marched out to the waiting police cars. The arresting cop put his hand on the back of my head, driving my chin into my chest, then pushed me awkwardly into the back of the car. It now felt familiar for me to be treated this way. Once at the police station, each of us was taken to a separate interview room. I was shoved into a plastic seat facing a small table. The cop stood in front of me and glared in silence. My mind raced. What should I say? We had no plan. Rick and Donna were having a child and I felt responsible to protect them. I had nothing to lose. Another cop walked in and shut the door. He began to pound me with questions. What's your name? David Harris. Where are you from? Victoria. Who's your friend? He's my cousin. What's his name? Rick. Found a lot of nice stuff at your house. Booze, jewellery, stereo gear. Your cousin Rick says you stole it. Yeah, well I did. Did you now? All by yourself? Yeah, stole all of it. Gonna take the rap for him, are ya? Jeez, you're a soft touch. He lagged on you, you know. They bombarded me with more questions. Left the room, came back and questioned me again. Meanwhile, Rick received the same treatment a few rooms away. After a couple of hours, they put us together in a cell. We compared our experiences... They had told Rick I'd lagged on him, and so he would admitted to some of the burglaries. The cops had played this game a million times. We had no idea what was going on. Meanwhile, other cops were busy matching all of the stuff from our house to burglary reports. After more questioning, we were ushered into the General holding cell with a bunch of others who'd been arrested that day. Some must have been brought in for drunkenness. The cops seemed to be almost friendly to them, encouraging them to settle down and everything would be okay. Others sat in sullen silence, glaring at the cops as they came and went. I guess they, like us, had more serious reasons for being there. Nobody said much, besides the drunks who wanted to be friends with everyone. Rick and I settled into a stony silence, sat on a wooden slap bench and waited. A few hours later the cops dragged me out, took me to an interview room, fingerprinted me, took a statement and formally charged me with a string of burglaries. They returned me to the cell and took off. An hour later, Rick and I were both in the back of a transport van, bound for the remand centre at Canning Vale. The centre was almost new, and seemed like a motel with razor wire around it. Each of us had a cell to himself which was like a motel unit. We even had a key to our own units. Each unit had a comfortable bed, its own ensuite and a colour TV. Nearby was a gym and a tennis court. Decent meals came three times a day. Compared to the dingy dormitory and crowded exercise yard at Pentridge, this was five star. Strangely, I was relieved. In the remand centre, I was clean of drugs and had stability, security and structure in my life. My worst fear of getting caught had come to pass and it had turned out to be almost enjoyable. For the moment, I felt almost no need for drugs. I hit the gym and worked to recover my fitness, which had gone downhill since my army days. I started playing tennis and even read a couple of books. I began to feel good about myself. But then the voices began. I felt captured by the darkness. Alone in the cool dark cell at night, the voices came as overpowering thoughts that hammered away inside my head. I should kill myself. I must kill myself. I will kill myself. I grasped at my head trying to squeeze the thoughts out of my mind, but they were relentless, urging me, commanding me to end my life. During the day I could distract myself with exercise, sport, TV, but each night, after lights out, the battle of the darkness would begin again. I began to sense the presence of spirits in the room, evil spirits with evil intent, all around me seemed to be a hateful presence, as if the air was thick with evil. I was terrified, convinced that they wanted to kill me. The voices in my head screamed. It got to the point where I was terrified of lights out, knowing that the evil multitude would return and taunt me. One night I just snapped, pounding frantically on the door of my cell, yelling and pleading for the screws to help me. No one came. I was frantic. I kicked and bashed the door, screaming in terror, begging someone, anyone, to come turn on the lights, drive away the evil, and take me somewhere safe. Eventually, the screw arrived, opened the door and dragged me out. I was transferred to an observation cell, where the lights stayed on. I calmed down and fell into a fitful sleep. The next day, I saw the prison psychiatrist. I tried to explain the voices and the evil presence to him. He nodded knowingly, but I could tell he was unconvinced. He'd seen it dozens of times. I was just another criminal nutcase, psychotic from using dope. I believed that the real problem was spiritual, so I asked to see the prison chaplain, Reverend Gwilty was a small, frail-looking old man, quietly spoken, with wire-rimmed glasses and a grandfatherly manner. He wore a grey flannel shirt and clerical collar. His gentle and patient manner encouraged me to talk. I told him about my experiences, the voices, the seances and the conversations with the spirit, who I now realised was a demon. He listened carefully, encouraging me with a nod or a "Uh uh-huh. He seemed to believe me. When I had finished, he prayed for me, asking God for peace and reassurance. I felt a little better. Looking down at my hands, he saw I was wearing a huge silver ring in the shape of a lion's head. He suggested that it may have some spiritual significance and encouraged me to get rid of it. Immediately, I twisted it off my finger and pressed it into his hand, begging him to take it away from me. He smiled and promised to dispose of it. Talking with Rev Gwildy made me feel better and he prayed with me as often as he could. I developed a strong trust and affection for the old man. He believed me, encouraged me, and helped me believe I was worth his time and effort. Besides Rick, Rev. Guilty was the only one who believed that the problem was spiritual. After a couple of visits with Rev. Guilty, he suggested that he perform an exorcism. I'm not sure that that was Rev. Guilty's regular line of work. He seemed a bit unsure of himself, but I guess he was driven by compassion. He could see that I was being tormented. It was a spiritual problem and he was the guy to do the spiritual stuff. Maybe he felt obligated to do something. I was nervous about what an exorcism would be like. Finally, a week after the idea was presented to me, I met Rev in a small interview room. Rev Gwildy had brought with him a Catholic priest. He was a large man, with a shock of dark hair and dressed in flowing clerical robes. He looked an imposing figure, a bit like a judge. The room was sparsely furnished with no windows. I was seated in the middle on a chair. While the two clergymen stood beside me and prayed, they proclaimed Bible verses and ordered the demons to leave. There was no real indication that demons were gone, so they just kept going. More verses, more demands for the foul demons to go in Jesus' name. I was confused, not understanding what was going on, but I hoped they could do something. They asked me to repeat prayers. I didn't know what the prayers meant, as they contained religious-sounding words but I was ready to do anything to get rid of the voices and get some peace. These two were the only ones who believed me, so they were my only hope. After about an hour of quoting and commanding and praying and hoping, Rev. Guilty and the big Catholic priest figured they had done what they could. They asked how I was. I told them, I feel better, I think. My mind seems clearer. That was enough to encourage them. They gripped my shoulders warmly, gave me a final blessing, and were gone. For the next couple of days I felt better with a clear mind, sound sleep, and no voices. But soon after, they were back. Softly at first, then louder and more intense. Within a week, I was worse than ever. I would stay out of my cell for as long as possible, working out in the gym until I was sent back to the cell block for a half an hour before lockdown and lights out. All the cells were locked during the day, and we each had a key. After lockdown, no one could get in or out without the screws remotely releasing the lock on the cell door. One night, I walked into my cell, leaving the door open behind me. My head was already resounding with voices fighting for my attention. My bed was on the far side of the room. I walked over and looked down at the green blanket spread across the top. Out of nowhere, a razor blade materialised on the bed. The voices in my head became a deafening chorus, begging me to kill myself and join them on the other side. I picked up the blade, cursed the demon out loud and dropped it into the toilet. Just then, Rick walked in wondering what the noise was about. As I began to explain, another blade materialised on the floor between us. See? This is a second one. I picked it up and walked over to the toilet. There in the bottom of the pan was the first blade. See? I shouted, pointing at the blade. Rick and I stared at one another in disbelief. Rick had been as much involved in the occult as I had, yet he wasn't suffering at the hands of the demon spirits I was. I was afraid and angry that the demons were now trying to kill me. The razor blades proved there was something to my story. Certified, the autobiography of David Harris. Written by David and Helen Harris. Read by James Pollack. For more information on the book, go to certifiedthebook.com.